This is Pulse 95. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. Life Beats, Life Beats. with Sally Musa only on Pulse 95. Sabah al khair. So good to have you joining me for Life Beats today. I'm Sally Musa, and it is a special show today as I share one of my favorite interviews from the Exposure International Photography Festival. You're about to meet two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning photographer Estras M. Suarez. He is the chief photographer for Million Eyes, an online platform that brings talented writers and photographers together and was a multi-award-winning photojournalist for 20 years with images published in the National Geographic, Time Magazine, The New York Times and The Washington Post, amongst others. He was a staff photographer at the Boston Globe for 12 years and while there, he received national and international accolades for his coverage of stories including the Columbine shooting, the Boston Marathon bombing, the Newtown Massacre, the 2015 tsunami aftermath, the Iraq war coverage, and more. He's also received multiple awards for his portrait, food, product, and travel photography. Suarez reveals the unlikely story of how he became a photographer in the first place, the most difficult moments for him behind the camera, as well as how he developed such a talent for capturing prize-winning images, all while bullets are flying. That's next with me, Sally Musa on Pulse 95. This is Pulse 95. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. Life Beats, Life Beats. with Sally Musa only on Pulse 95. 95. Yes, it's Life Beats with me, Sally Musa, and I was lucky enough to spend the end of last week engrossed in some of the most extraordinary and beautiful images in the world at the Exposure International Photography Festival, where legends of the still image, including Sir Don McCullen, David Burnett and Estras M. Suarez, displayed some of their best and most moving work. Estras M. Suarez is particularly interesting as someone who has spent time all over the world photographing everything from war zones to school shootings to street photography with incredible depth of feeling. I sat down with the double Pulitzer Prize winner and asked him about how he became a photographer in the first place. Just such a pleasure to have you here in Sharjah as part of Exposure, uh, your amazing work. You are a multi Pulitzer Prize winning photographer. Um, I like you. <laughs> now, Take me back. Where did it all start for you when you thought, I want to be a photographer? You fell in love with photography. It's like, ask, that's kind of a hard question. I, was never, I never knew I had an inclination for photography. I was artistically inclined because I used to draw, but I, I didn't know anything about photography until I, I went to college. And in college, I realized that, uh, that I was struggling studying journalism, specializing in magazine writing, and then I was getting a minor in zoology because I thought that way I could work for the National Geographic. But then an advisor of mine who's teaching my first class of introduction to journalism, she asked me, why is it that you're doing this? Because you're kind of failing my class. Yeah. Every time you make a mistake, they take out 50 points. So I would start my test with minus 50. At times it was brutal. So she said, you know what? You know, the director of photography for National Geographic is alumnus of the school and he's coming to talk to photographers. You should go have dinner with them. And I'm like, no, I know nothing of photography. No, 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 I'm not going. She said, you're going. 
So she made me go. And it was the best thing that could have happened to me because, uh, you know, I hit it off really well with him. We had a lot to talk in common, even though I knew nothing of photography. I knew a lot about the National Geographic. I grew up reading National Geographic. So I asked him, so doing what I'm doing, do I have any chance of ever working for you guys? He's like, no, not really. We only hire experts on the field or very seasoned, proven photographers. And I'm like, okay, I'll turn into a photographer. He's like, yeah, right. And I, and I started focusing on photography and I, after that, but I asked him, so what do I do now? He said, well, I guess you could apply for the internship. I'm like, okay, when's the deadline? He says, it's August, it's in December. I'm like, perfect. I do a caricature of him, of him sitting on top of the world, like Rodin's thinker. I made a copy, I gave it to him, and I said, next time you see that photo, it'll be attached to my portfolio. He's like, mm-hmm. So I did, I did put it together. I wasn't gonna send it. The same advisor, the same woman, she asked for it because she heard that I had been working really hard in photography. And uh, she, I gave it to her and she said, oh, this is good, you're gonna send it. I'm like, no. The more I learned about photography, the more I realized that uh, it was ludicrous of me to talk to Tom Kennedy of the National Geographic that way. So I'm not gonna send it. So she took it away from me. I'm like, mm. she sent it with unbeknownst to me. And two months later, she calls me back to the office. I got someone on the phone for you. And it was Tom Kennedy. And I thought he was gonna be mad at me because I had wasted his time. And instead he said, look, Estras, you have a long way to go, but I see potential. Uh, I need someone who speaks Spanish and English, knows about the tropics, knows a bit about animals and a bit about photography. So he basically described me at that stage of my life. And he said, I need you to help assist a couple of my photographers on assignments, and I can, but I can only pay you $50 a day. I'm like, you wanna pay me on top of this? I would have gone for free. So once I had that, that's it. I was hooked. I'm like, this is it. The rest of my life, this is what I'm going to do. What, what You've photographed some incredible places around the world. You've traveled everywhere. Um, what are the moments that really stand out for you as photographs that you, you will never forget that you took moments and places? Because, I mean, the thing about you is you were there um, at the Boston Marathon bombing and you photographed that. I mean, tell me what that was like, first of all. Actually, that one wasn't that bad at all for me specifically because I finished my job two hours before the bomb went off and I I went to the office, moved my photos, and I asked, I even asked them, do you want me to stay in the finish line? And they said, uh, no, no, that's okay, you can come and move your photos. I was on my way home, I called my wife, and my wife's like, where are you? I'm like, what's going on? She said, there are bombs in the city. So at that point, I tried to turn back into Boston. They were close in the city, so I parked very far away. I walked in a couple of miles into the city, and I started covering all the aftermath. Uh, cops running, people looking scared, people crying over the phones. And so my photos were part of the overall coverage, the catching of the, of the terrorists in Watertown, which is where I used to live. It happened like blocks from my house, and so it was all part of the, the, the group entry. So that wasn't that, that bad for me. Um, I've had a lot more intimate situations in which that was all about where I was at that moment. Uh, more recent, about a year and a half ago, in Washington, I, I, we were in bed. My wife and I had just woken up, 7 a.m. in the morning, and we're just kind of waking up, and we hear boom, 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 very rhythmic. My wife is like, are those shots? She's also a journalist. I'm like, no, nothing ever happens in Virginia. And then boom, boom, goes boom, boom, pow, pow, boom. I'm like, oh crap, those are shots. So I, I got dressed, I put my gear together. That night I was heading to Ecuador to lead a workshop. 
And so I put all my gear together, climb up to the rooftop, look down. I could see all the cops coming into the area, but I didn't know what it was. I didn't have a direct line of sight. So I went down the street, I ran up the highway and I went up a ramp just in time to see a helicopter land with enough time to turn around and get a shot of somebody being pushed in a gurney into the helicopter. So I have the sequence of that. And uh, and then I, I look around and I'm like, huh, I'm the only one here. And then the other photographers started arriving. So I called the Washington Post because I have a good relationship with them and I told them, I have these photos, I don't know what to do with them. It might be something big. So they're, they're, they, they took it and it turns out that it was Congressman Scalise being some crazy guy shot up a bunch of, of Republican uh, politicians. So even when I am not a full-time photojournalist, no, if I hear shots, I run to them. It's just in my nature. It's silly, but it is what it is. Yeah. Coming up next, find out how Suarez learned to shoot compelling images, often while bullets are flying. That's next on Life Beats on Pulse95. This is Pulse95. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. Life Beats. Life Beats. With Sally Musa, only on Pulse95. 95. I'm in conversation with multi-award-winning photographer Estras M. Suarez all about his art and life. He tells me how he developed such a talent for shooting powerful images often while bullets are flying. He has a very particular mantra that really serves not just in photography, but in life. If I hear commotion, I grab my cameras and I go because I want to know what's going on. And you want to be part of it and you want to make sure because, I mean, you know, photography is about, um, you know, capturing that moment and, and, you know, you could miss it. You could miss it so easily. Practice, practice, practice. So nowadays I take people to Cuba in photo workshops a lot. And there is one day that we go from point A to point B and it's five hours on a bus. Throughout all the time, I'm shooting through the window. I'm photographing people. As a matter of fact, uh, there's a couple of photos in the exhibit that are from that. Because what happens, if you can capture, while you're in a moving bus at 60 miles per hour and you can capture stuff going out on the streets and you can get it sharp, you know you can shoot. So what? I'm just basically sharpening my skills continuously because you don't want to come to a situation where all mayhem chaos is breaking out and you don't want to even think about your cameras your cameras need to become an extension of who you are they need they need to be part of your instinct so you got to keep your skills sharp i also shoot which much to most photographers surprise i shoot everything in jpeg fine most photographers shoot raw and the thing about it is newspapers don't require such big files so i've gotten used to expediency uh, when you shoot raw, it slows down your camera because there's a lot of information. If I'm doing a commercial job or if I'm on assignment, I know to shoot raw because I know that the information is needed. But if I'm shooting on my own and chaos breaks out, I'm shooting JPEG fine till the end of the day because I don't make that many mistakes anymore. That's another thing. Not, not, not about, it's not about being considered. It's just that I have made hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of mistakes and I have learned from them. So, you know, uh, Einstein, I think, used to say that the definition of madness is to do the same thing over and over and expect a different outcome so if you don't learn from your mistakes you're just dumb so i'm not that dumb i've learned from it <laughs> and the thing is you know when you talk about um you know jbeck fine because you like news is about it's instant it's you've moment. got to be able to send it yeah and you can't send so a when I, image that would just take forever when i took those photos of the, the that last shooting in washington within 20 minutes the washington post had the photos uh i was able to move them really fast i i can 
This is going to sound crazy, but I can I can edit 20,000 images in an hour and 45 minutes. I can go through every single frame and I can tag and keep the ones that I like in that long because I've had to do it before. If you do it instinctually, you do it as a reflex. If the photo doesn't move you enough to even slow down when you're going through the edit, just let it go because if you have doubts, everybody looking at your photos will definitely have doubts. So I want to ask you about, you know, some of the... Um as I was saying earlier, some of those incidents, those moments that have most affected you and you've captured photos that are, you know, obviously prize winning. You know, you don't think about it. You you just do what you do. If it's part of, it doesn't matter what situation it is, I will approach it the same way. I have a mantra when I'm shooting, which my class needs to learn, which is keep shooting, keep moving, keep adjusting. Keep shooting, keep moving, keep adjusting. Those three verbs will get you anywhere. If this is just part of what you do, it just you just fall you just fall into a situation. Every photographer that has been in chaos and wars and disasters, people ask, "But when you scare, when when you scare, you're gonna get shot, or you're gonna fall in a hole, or something." And we kind of get so focused on, on the task at hand, even when the bullets are flying, you just want to make sure you create that separation and you create composition, and that helps you deal with the situation. That's amazing when you say to me, you're thinking about composition when bullets are flying. It's true. It, it's, it's a good photographer. But it's it's not because you're a superhero and you think you're, you know. No, it's just because if you get in the habit of always doing that, you're, it's like martial arts. I teach martial arts. In martial arts, you repeat an emotion over and over until it becomes part of who you are. I tell people, don't come behind me and grab me in the shoulder because I will have you in an arm lock on the ground before I even realize what happens. And that's just the way you, your, your mind, your body trains. So if you train yourself to always do the right things when it comes to composing and exposures and everything, it just happens. That's incredible. I want to get to the emotional aspect of it, though, you know, because you've covered some, uh, you know, traumatic, really traumatic experiences. Does that affect you? It turns out that I'm really good at compartmentalizing things. I have shot through tears. I have. Where? Uh, Tell me about it. I knew you were going to do this. Coming up next, find out what have been some of the most difficult moments for Suarez behind the camera. That's next on Life Beats on Pulse95. This is Pulse95. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. Life Beats Beats. with Sally Musa, only on Pulse95. Photojournalists often have to capture some harrowing moments in their line of work. And Estras M. Suarez has been behind the camera capturing some of the most devastating moments in America's recent history. Here I ask him about the ones that have affected him the most. I want to get to the emotional aspect of it, though, you know, because you've covered some, uh, you know, traumatic, really traumatic experiences. Does that affect you? It turns out that I'm really good at compartmentalizing things. I have shot through tears. I have. Where? Uh, Tell me about it. I knew you were going to do this. Um, Columbine was the first time that I actually covered something like that. And, and Columbine's claim to fame, sadly enough, is that it was the first of its kind. Now it, it's not even a, a blip on the radar of all the shootings that have happened. The bookends of my career were Columbine and Newtown, a Connecticut shooting. And that was 21 children. And it's brutal. It's brutal. And uh, I remember in, in Columbine, after three days of covering that story, a lot of my colleagues were being taken out. You know, they would be like, okay, come back, go do something else. And I didn't understand, but they were affected by it. And I was not, I don't know why. 
Then on the eighth day, I remember telling myself, I don't really want to photograph another person crying, another person hugging. I've done this too much. It has to be extraordinary for me to pick up a camera today. And I'm standing in this parking lot where all these cars of a lot of the kids I had gotten killed and all these cars became impromptu memorials. People putting flowers, stuffed animals, candles. And so I'm, I'm watching, I'm not really doing many photos that day. And I see this kid, tough looking kid with a leather jacket, football. And you know, this kid had like a big brow, thick neck, this kid was tough. And so I see the kid across the parking lot and for some reason I lock eyes with him. And he's not seeing me, he's looking at where I'm looking, but what, I'm, what he's also looking at is a pickup truck that is in between he and I. And that pickup truck belonged to a friend of his that got shot. And as he got closer and closer to the pickup truck, he just, you know, his body started shaking, his face just turned into a, a, a mask of a grimace of pain and his shoulders started shaking and I picked up my camera and I have some frames and I, just as he touches the, the truck. And I didn't realize that, but I dropped my cameras at that point and had, I, had they not been on my shoulders, I would have gone to the ground. It's crying, just crying and I had no idea why. So I had to call the office and I said, you gotta take me out of here apparently, apparently I need a break. So a lot of times I have had to work through them through those things and and I also think that you should never de develop an emotional callus to the point that you don't care about the people you're photographing because you're born into this world as a human being and you're gonna die a human being and you better live with your actions and ethics that you did through your life and I like to think that you always gotta walk in other people's shoes um, I'll give you a very personal story my father took his own life in Panama and later on a couple of years later I went back to Panama to teach a photo workshop and I found out that the photographers were there on the scene and they, they work for papers that all they do is cover blood and graphic stuff. The, the bloodier, the more graphic, the more, the more they sell newspapers. And I, and I remember hearing the stories from my family, how they were trying to push their way into the venue, whatever it happened, so they could photograph the body. And the photographers were just being rude about it. And I told all these people in there, had I been there, I would have grabbed you by the throat and I would have put you against the wall. Because I would never, and just as a human being, I, I would never do that. So if I won't do it as a human being, why would I do it as a photographer? So I think you need to you need to pay attention to other people's feelings, and you have to weigh in that moment. There was this there was this one moment in Indonesia after the tsunami, where um, I got there six days after the fact because my newspaper they didn't. I kept telling them, "This is big. You need me to go." No, it's all it's all good. I'm like, "Why don't you get me my satellite?" phone ready and they're like yeah don't worry about it two days later this is huge the numbers keep running you want me to go no no don't worry about it why don't you get me my satellite phone ready the next day they call me and said you gotta go i'm like uh-huh did you get me my satellite phone no i mean guess what i cannot leave until i get that sad phone how am i gonna get the photos to you and uh, they got it to me i left on the 31st of december i got to when i needed to go banda ashe i think the fourth it took me four days to get to that region so a lot of days had gone by and i photographed another three days so the world had already covered the spot news aspect of this event so i was being careful and selective on my photos and i remember coming into a mash a mobile air support hospital unit where there were a lot of people that had been wounded and there were ivs and there were a lot of doctors and there was this one kid i could see from afar when you, when the human body gets caught in, in flood waters, in churning waters with debris, the skin can get peeled off. So this kid had no skin left on his face and he's, he was in shock, obviously. And I saw it and I thought to myself, why do, what, why do I need to take this photo? If all the graphic has been already shown, all I'm gonna be doing is stressing this kid, I don't need to do this. 
just as I was walking away from that scene, a Japanese photographer pushed me out of the way. He ran into the tent, he put a wide angle right in the kid's face. Uh, a doctor grabbed him and pulled him off, and as he did that, I took out my, my long lens and I did the same shot from afar. And then we, we both got kicked out of there, which I was very happy about. That was a photo that, because I knew that photo now would exist, I couldn't not take it. I needed to take it because I was there, but I wasn't going to take it. If there was nobody else there, I would have never taken the shot because there was no need to cause me any more stress, more pain to that kid. Coming up next, find out what Suarez advises budding photographers today. That's next with me, Sally Musa, on Life Beats on Pulse95. This is Pulse95. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. Life Beats, Life Beats. with Sally Musa, only on Pulse95. 95. It's Life Beats, and I'm speaking to one of the world's foremost photojournalists, Estras M. Suarez. And here he tells me about the importance of maintaining emotional understanding and sensitivity towards his subject and his advice to budding photographers. In this day and age where every single person has a camera, that we're kind of um, desensitized to that kind of thing and, and we don't understand this anymore. Yeah, it's really sad. People really don't understand that. When somebody's climbing on, on a ledge, you do no good by pointing your camera and basically waiting for the person to jump. People have written, there's a, it's, it's a barrier. I mean, you see people walking down the street with their phones. I, I It bothers me. I actually, when I see somebody so engrossing what they're doing on a sidewalk, I sometimes just stand my ground. And when they come, it's like, eyes up. Because that's not human, that's not civilized. It's like people need to learn there's there's an etiquette to deal with other people and the phones get in the way. So right, a couple of questions. Your favorite photo that you've taken and your favorite photo that you never took? <laughs> favorite photo that I've taken is not in the exhibition downstairs. It's, uh, it's two brothers in uh, Egypt who five years before I took that photo had found a, a water hole in the desert and they, they changed the whole area, they created an oasis, basically. So now they, 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 they have agricultural crops in there. So the photo is the two brothers carrying loads at sunset and they're mirror each other. This is one lonely tree in the background. It's a beautiful photo, it's gorgeous and it's perfectly balanced, everything works. Yeah, it's not in the exhibition. I, I put it in so they didn't pick it, <laughs> my choice. And the photos that I have missed in my life, I well, can count Well, photos them. from other photographers that you love so much. That inspire you? Oh yeah, God. I love Alex Webb's work. Uh, I love Bill Epridge's work. I love Jody Cobb. I love David Allen Harvey. Um, uh, Stanfield, Jim Stanfield. A lot of National Geographic photographers that grew up on that. Uh, there's a friend of mine, who, his name is Dominic Chavez, who covers conflicts and focuses in Africa. Uh, his work influenced me a lot. There's a lot of there's a lot of better people out there than me. Your advice to budding photographers now? Practice, practice, practice. Give yourself the assignment you want someone else to give you. I used people used to give me that line. I didn't understand it until I gave myself the assignment that I wanted to do. I I decided I was going to cover the life in this little neighborhood in Denver, and I did it for two years. And that's where I learned how to shoot. That's where I learned about light. I learned about moments, a lot intimacy, and that was the best thing because I didn't have a deadline. It was all about being there and just becoming part of the environment. So, and and again, you always use the golden rule: do upon others what you want done upon you. 
you know, be be emotional, but be careful, you know, do your job, but take other people into account when you do it. And that is how you become a Pulitzer Prize winning photographer. Great advice from Estras M. Suarez, who was teaching workshops and had a retrospective on show at the Exposure International Photography Festival here in Sharjah. Coming up next, our favorite fitness couple is back and we talk weights versus cardio and carb cycling. No, it is not baguettes on a bicycle. We tell you what that is next here on Life Beats on Pulse 95. This is Pulse 95. Tune in live every weekday from 10 a.m.